Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Roshni Huwama, who is the head of cyber governance at Red Sift Limited. Roche is also an ambassador for the Global Cyber Alliance, and she's very active in the cybersecurity community. We're going to be talking to Roche about a couple of the most significant threats that she sees in the context of cybersecurity. Uh, before we jump into conversation, though, I want to let, let everybody know that Roche and her company, Red Sift Limited, have been very kind and gracious and have offered all listeners of the Secure Talk podcast a 15% discount on their services. How cool is that? I'll put more information in the ep- this episode's description. So if you'd like to find out how you can save 15% on this amazing business email compromise solution, please check out the description of this podcast and or go ahead and go to the Red Sift Limited website. Now, let's jump into our show. Hi, Roche. How are you doing today? I'm well, Mark. Thanks for asking yourself pretty good we're in the i guess thanksgiving eve here uh in the u.s and which is kind of special this year because you know we're not supposed to be celebrating thanksgiving and everybody's supposed to be staying at home and social distancing and all that we'll have to see how things plan out are you are you in london yes yeah and we're in lockdown at the moment and it's uh second of december but you know you know the sensible best practice is you know don't do it Right. Just keep your distance, wash your hands, and all of the good stuff. So. I mean, I kind of feel like we're, we're we're getting close, hopefully, to the end of this. Some people are, you know, a lot of us, I guess everybody feels a little bit of impatience in terms of we want to get our life back to normal. But, you know, in the U.S., we had our election, and we, it looks like we actually have a new president, and we have um, a vaccine coming globally, and... You know, so it, hopefully we can just get through these next few months. Um, do you do you feel any kind of sense of anticipation there in the, in the UK? Mark, I'm massively optimistic. So yeah, so we've got a, there's a. I know there were two vaccines on the US side, and there was one in Germany and Oxford vaccine, um, which apparently is going to be really inexpensive and um, to to make, and then also to transport because it doesn't have to be kept at freezing. And I think that's of course that's a game changer. But we know that the best advice is then we need to maintain the social distance. We need to uh, keep the masks on. But vaccine is like that's step one, right? Then we can return to like social distancing with masks and move on from there. So, yeah, I'm really, really keen. I didn't realize I'd miss queuing, but I do. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just standing in line and, and, and ha- maybe chit-chatting with people around you, right? So, um, yeah. <clears throat> exactly. I am... Um... You know, you made, let me back up, this year has taught me a lot about the power of getting accurate information, Um, you know, when it comes to the pandemic or it comes to anything else. And we're living in a time where that's not always the easiest thing to do. And you actually made a comment um, or a post recently regarding the two things that are the two most significant threats that you were facing thought were facing us in terms of cybersecurity. Could, could you um, kind of go back and talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, I was a panelist on the Cybercrime and Counterterrorism Symposium with the NYPD, and I'm sitting alongside the FBI 
and uh, New York City Cyber Command. And the question was, you know, what are the two most significant cyber threats? And I said, of course, business email compromise is number one. That's not disputed. Um, and number two, I saw as disinformation. It was in the run up. It was it was in the run up to the election. Um, and the reason that I said that is not because I'm prescient. It's because we've seen this before, right? So we saw this in in uh, 2016 um, with the DNC hack with Podesta. But I, I suppose in order really to to frame why I thought disinformation was so problematic is because if if you look at the cyber landscape from purely commercial point of view so we'll just move away from the election for one moment it's really noisy there's a huge amount of information um, and it's getting more opaque on a daily basis and to give you some idea okay so you have your cyber assisted crime your traditional crimes that offend home on the internet so your romance scams you know i love you give me money you have your cyber dependent crimes the ones that fool the machine and then you have your purely technical those hybrid so the so so-called um, cyber enabled but if you look if you only take cyber dependent crimes as an example so we're just taking one kind of not small section but just one section there's thousands of common vulnerabilities and exposures and then that gives rise to millions of unique malicious objects um, in 2019 the figure was kicking around about 24 million um, that was an uptake of 14 percent on the previous year and if you continue at that rate within five years, the figure will be close to 50 million unique malicious objects. So there's no way for businesses to reasonably collate and crunch all of that data. Um, and this is why the intelligence community is so important because they can cut through all of that noise. Um, they're a credible source um, and they give you trusted independent um, information so they have access to information that's otherwise unavailable to the private sector and they're a body of experts. Um, my comment was in relation to the firing of um, uh, Chris Krebs of CISA and I was concerned that so I didn't see that coming I have to say that uh, right out um, I didn't see the disinformation continuing after the election I thought what we were going to see was I thought we were going to see more along the lines of what we'd seen in 2016. So you had the Podesta email dump of um, of data with WikiLeaks. I think there was something in the order of like 20,000 or so emails. Um, and then, of course, that created an awful lot of concern, um, which which impacted Clinton's um position. So I know you'll probably know this better than I will, but I think she was in a pretty strong position. And then the email thing happened. And then that kind of threw it. Um, and I was worried we were going to see something like that again. But it's interesting because I've been thinking about this um, over the last couple of days. What I'd, The firing of Krebs for telling the truth. I don't think technically it is disinformation. Um, so disinformation, well, disinformation is defined in two ways, really. So you have the British government um, definition, which is just deliberately misinforming 
um, for either for personal, financial or political gain. Um, whereas Professor um, Thomas Ridd, who's a cybersecurity expert at King's College in London, specifically um, defines disinformation as having a political motivation. So that's the defining factor. Um, if, if the goal, um, he, he, he talks about the goal, if, if the goal is to exacerbate existing tensions by leveraging facts and, and um, fakes and ideally a disorienting mix of both, um, then that's, that's disinformation. And so specifically, I was worried about that level of political warfare, that type of active measure. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure actually if Trump's message of voter fraud can really be defined as disinformation. Um, well, because, I, I um, mean, I, I think you can look at it this from from many different ways. Uh, one is anytime you create some kind of political instability or distrust in your political institutions, that also has financial ramifications uh, and and geopolitical ramifications, and. What you saw, what you've seen is that, the, you know, the D Department of Homeland Security has taken this so seriously that they launched their room control website because there's so much information out there and so much of it is disingenuous. I mean, it's just out there to confuse people. And then you have a huge segment of the population, not just in America, I think in, in, a, in a lot of uh, countries these days that uh, that people believe in some type of deep state organization. So there's already this, you know, underlying distrust. And there are actors who want to kind of fuel that. And and I it's, totally agree it's a, it's, it's a threat. Uh, but when, when the people who are set, you know, who are there to kind of counter that, as Chris Krebs was right. doing and the, the rumor control website was doing, um, but when they lose credibility and 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 and, and actually are um, victims of a backlash for reporting the truth, right? I mean, that yeah. is, I would say the majority of the people believe or trust that. Um, but you've got it. You've got a major problem there when you have an acting president. I, you know, I, I don't want to go too deep into the, the politics here. But when mm -hmm. you got an acting president that, that fires somebody for essentially being a, I wouldn't call it. It's not even a whistleblower. It's just somebody who's saying, "Hey, this information is verifiable. This information is not." Um, and then, then it's a problem because then who do you trust? And then it's just kind of like we go to the lowest common denominator. We've lowered the bar, and it's and it's we live on a day to day basis of of who's posting what on their favorite rumor mill or echo chamber. Sorry, that was so, my little rant. Go ahead. No, no, no. Listen, look, I'm absolutely with you. So I think look, this is definitely it was definitely disinformation. But I, I'm I'm a little bit worried that um, we're we're defining it too widely to include what Trump did. So, so like you said, so you had before the election, the FBI and the intelligence community took the unusual step of publishing uh, like a memo to say, this is a very safe election. We've dotted the I's, we've crossed the T's, everything is an apple pie order. We're good to go. It's gonna be the safest election in American history, and I have to say, if it's the safest election in American, if it's the safest election in American history, then in all likelihood, it is the safest election that's ever taken place anywhere in the world, right? So, um, so look, it has been it has been described as disinformation. So there's uh, Yoko Benkler from Harvard. Um, he, um, together with his team, looked at you know where was this false narrative coming from, and they 
um, were able to laser in on, it started with Trump, it's being amplified by um, the media that tilts towards him. Um, and that was it. It, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't really coming from any other sources. But what I'm worried about is if we use disinformation for something as as kind of infantile as this, then we risk diluting what disinformation uh, really is. And, and I just wonder if we might not just come straight out and say that it was a lie, you know, that on the one hand, you had Chris Krebs telling the truth based on all of the evidence. Um, and then we don't try to whitewash what happened um, by calling it disinformation. I suppose that's that's really um, where, where I, I wonder if we shouldn't make the distinction between um, disinformation that's, you know, politically motivated by um, our, adver our, our an adversary, you know, yeah. um, and, and, what, and what the Russians, what we know the Russians did, you know, in, in 2016. Yep. And have been doing for like nearly 100 years, right? You know, so they're really, really good at this. But, you know, I, this, I might be arguing over semantics. For sure, it wasn't true. Um, and the reason that we need to protect the intelligence community, I think, is because in cybersecurity, all of us are relying on them, um, you know. Sure. So, so what you're saying is calling a lie disinformation isn't in fact disinformation. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think it's at the level of like an active measure. So, you know, um, it's the, the, the sort of the classic definition is that you have um, you take facts and a fake and, a, and then you disorient with both of those so that people can't distinguish. Mm -hmm. But it would have been very easy for people to distinguish what was true and what was not. And that I think is a bigger problem. Because I'm sorry. Well, so it, yeah. So it's like, it's like, you know, you know, we touched on, um, uh, on like, you know, the vaccine. So I think that there's, you know, there's, there's kind of almost like a bigger issue where people are presented with the facts, but will rather lean into the lie. Um, and yeah. I don't understand why that's, the vaccine thing to me is is mind boggling. Uh, you know what? And and deep down inside, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist. You know, I I love I love me a good conspiracy theory. Okay, <laughs> but okay. Um, but you know, I mean, some of the some of the disinformation going around about the vaccine and you know the, the 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 nefarious motivations of the people who are bringing the vaccine to the world stage and you know some of the richest people in the world and it's all a diabolical plot for them to. I've heard things as, you know, to get mind control, to to get our information, whatever that means. Uh, like, you can have my information. I'll take the vaccine. You know, it's 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 amazing. And, you know, and, and we've had vaccines now for, I don't know, 180 years, 90 years. Um, you know, and then and there's argument. Well, these are this this has been rushed to the to the market and all under the guise of covid and blah blah but it's amazing because there's just so much information out there and, and i think life used to be simpler when we had our two daily newspapers in every metropolitan area uh three major networks in the u.s uh and and you know in the in the uk you had bbc and uh, and your other news sources but it was a, a relatively limited amount and you could argue both sides of that but life was definitely simpler back then right 
Oh, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, hundred percent. You know, you weren't scrolling every two minutes. Like, uh, you know, we're here in the UK, and you know, to get updates on Biden on the, the on the US election, even though you couldn't expect any reasonable new material. Right. You know, constantly uh, checking, and then you know, checking like multiple sources to see. And actually, I was I was um was guilty of a little bit of disinformation myself, but it was born of relying on the Associated Press who uh, who uh, called Arizona for Biden well before anybody else did. So, um, so you know, I, I, I was calling the election based on the Associated Press, whereas an awful lot of the other news agencies held off on it. Um, so, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah I, 100% life is so much easier. Um, well, let's... Go ahead. No, I was just wondering if we're not going to sort of return to that a little bit with um, because as you know, as disinformation mounts and and um, and expands, then we're going to. I mean, we all understand that subscribing to legitimate news agencies is the safest possible option, rather than using social media as our source of information, right? Yeah, I, I think there is room for a a rumor control media, you know, a, a, a trusted information source that doesn't have a political agenda one way or the other. And I got to say, I mean, I, I look at both sides and both sides are guilty of furthering the, the agenda, their respective agendas. Um, and then that plays out in social media where, you know, it's just the, the echo chamber. People post things that make them feel good and they, they, they ignore things that give them any kind of cognitive dissonance, you know, so they want that po positive affirmation. Um, it, it's it's. But, you know, because I, I read I've read so many articles about, you know, the collapse of the the, the, the healthcare system. It, this is when I was in Japan, for example. Um, and a, um, a friend of mine was the bureau chief for one of the major American newspapers, bureau chief for Japan and, and uh, Korea. You know, and he was posting articles about, you know, the, the, the imminent collapse of the Japanese medical system. And I, and I was there in Japan and I was like, I'm not seeing anything. And I have friends who are doctors and nurses. Nobody was say anything and i and i asked him i said like where do you get this from and he's like well i was talking to the head of the jama the japan medical association and th you know th they're convinced that it's going to collapse and i was like well you know okay people in large organizations always have different agendas and in, in, in motivations so i said have you been out to any local hospitals no so i got on my bike and i went over to the local the largest hospital in um yokohama and it was i was like can i come in can i get tested they're like sure um uh, I was like, are you guys busy or busier than normal? And they're like, not really. No, you know, it's like, so who can you trust? Right. And, and I think there's a place for, for, uh, for some type of news organization that will just give us the straight news, just report the facts. Um, I don't know. Call me old fashioned, but. <laughs> no, Mark, look, oh, you're a hundred percent on it, but we have just this as a case in point where you have Chris Krebs, highly credible, head of CISA, part of you know the um, de Department of Homeland Security, hired by this guy who comes out and tells the truth. Access to information that is otherwise unavailable has had his finger on a pulse. This is his job. It's like, you know, you had one job to do and he did it. Right. He said in advance of the election, he said, we have no evidence that there's any interference 
Then you have simultaneously, you've got this guy, Jochai Benkler, who's doing the research and saying the only guy who's talking about it is Trump. And it's his narrative that's being amplified. And then who did people believe? Did they believe the guy who told 24,000 lies over four years? Or did they believe Chris Krebs? Well, people believe they they hear what they want to hear and they believe who they want to believe. And it, it's it's amazing to me um, how how you can have conversations with educated people and and they base their beliefs oftentimes upon um, their, the the party that they support, right? And I and I, I I have to say I think both sides are maybe not equally as guilty, but guilty of spreading disinformation at, at various times. And so it's, it, it both sides can, you know, in America, unfortunately, we just have two sides, you know, seriously, there are, there are some, a couple third party options, but <laughs> unlike the UK, I mean, how many, how many political parties do you have in the UK? Really? We only have two. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Yeah. So, 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 so you recognize that. Yeah. I mean, you're either with us or against us and that, and I think that actually kind of plays into this as well. Where if we had, you know, maybe a five, six, seven different party system, you'd have to be a little bit more diplomatic and form a coalition in theory. But anyway, we're going off on a completely different area. <laughs> but can I just can I just speak to your point? Because sure. actually, it seems to me so from the UK, it seems that, you know, it's um, you do have a huge amount of really good Republicans, albeit none of them appear to be in politics but you know there's, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, yeah. but, you know there, there's this huge movement which you know people uh, you know we've been discussing you know you've got your republican voters um you know against trump you've got your republicans for responsible leadership or veterans for responsible leadership they all seem to be um you know you have this whole body so actually if anything um those guys have come off really well here which is i mean you can cut that out if you want but no. um, it, it's um it, yeah this this whole um episode it, i don't think it's driven a wedge i think what it's done is is it's you've clearly got you know an element so that you know you've got the trump part then you have classic republicans who are you know shuddering um and um is it Mitt Romney? Yeah. You know, you, you've got, you do have, and 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 they're really shining through at the moment. So, um, just if there are any Republicans listening, they, um, it's are, not. It's some some it's of you guys, some some part. of you, yeah, some yeah. of you guys are okay, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I just posted uh, uh, recently McCain's. Uh, what do you call it when you you you've accepted defeat? Um, you, uh, oh, confession. I'm sorry. Concession speech. Yeah, yeah, the concession speech. I'm saying, yeah, and and, and you know he, he was super eloquent and gracious uh, when he lost the election to to Obama, of course, and he was praising yeah. President Obama, uh, and I was like, wow, what a picture of class, you know, and and that and I, I think. I mean, it, it, this has nothing to do with cybersecurity. Um, there's a tenuous tie to disinformation, but I I think that, you know, there is. Um, something about acting presidential. I also think the media, though, has a role to treat the president's position with a certain amount of respect as well. And it's funny that uh, the governor Cuomo, uh, who who started, you know, he, he had a, he who's obviously Democrat, but he was bickering with the press this week. He actually said something defending Donald Trump and said, "Well, you know, he's had a really tough time because the press d doesn't treat the position with as much respect as it should 
be or has been in the past. So it's kind of like we're going down this um, this rabbit hole, and uh, it would be nice if we could um, switch, you know, kind of reverse directions. So with that in, in mind, why don't we jump over to uh, to business email compromise? Tell us a little bit about, I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody knows what it is, but give us your definition, and then let's talk about um, some of the uh, the more serious threats that you're seeing. Okay, so business email compromise is essentially when the bad guys exploit the vulnerability in SMTP, so the Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, and it has been, you know, it's got about half a dozen names, which doesn't help, by the way. So it's, you know, known as phishing. Um, email account compromise, spear phishing, whale phishing, CTO, CFO fraud, Friday afternoon fraud. The list is endless. And so, the, you know, w- when I was saying about like the, the noise in uh, the cyber threat landscape, that contributes to it. Um, so that's business email compromise. And it is number one. And it isn't number one. And it's a neck and neck race. It is number one by a significant margin. And this is the intelligence community's report. And this is why I um, actually really felt the need to defend Chris Krebs because we rely so much on the intelligence community and cybersecurity sector. And and that's quite right. You know, we talk about credible sources. These guys are up there um, and on both sides of the Atlantic. So it's irrespective of whether you look at the FBI who call it like the $26 billion um, scam or you look to uh, the National Cybersecurity Center here, which is parented by GCHQ. GCHQ is sort of like our NSA. Um, they are listening guys. Um, so yeah, NCSC, they'll tell you, number one, it's phishing, and it is the starting point for 90% of targeted cyber attacks. So we mentioned Podesta, or I mentioned Podesta um, when I was talking about the disinformation. Um, the way they got into John Podesta's was through a spear phishing campaign. And that's, that, that was my concern, is that we would see more of that. Um, and that's essentially what the problem is. And is the reason, is it because it's the human factor? I mean, that you know, most of these attacks just depend on somebody clicking on something they shouldn't. It's, I mean, it's not super, super high tech. Uh, it, there is some social engineering that can be used. Is that the reason or is it, um, I mean, why is it so prevalent? Well, number one, it's really easy to do. So there's YouTube tutorials on how to do this that are, that run to about a minute and eight seconds. Um, so Amazing. that's, yeah, right. <laughs> so that's your learning time for that. Um, and so number one, it's really easy. Uh, number two, trust and identity, right? So if I'm able to hijack your identity i can do anything that you can do now and that's what business email compromises so people are trusting they're not you know when when something comes in and it has like mark schreiner's name and it's got your domain on it people go oh yeah that's mark right oh yeah what do you want me to do might be something small or it could be something like hey check this out what i found on you know instagram right but because they've been able to assume your identity that's their way in oh you know we see this all the time can i tell you my favorite please please <laughs> okay, okay, so this is this is it was this is back in 2016 as well um i mean this is obviously still ongoing but there was a french construction company 
Um, it's called Vinci and uh, started the day out at worth 35 billion. And um, at about nine o'clock in the morning, an email, a phishing email, um, went to Bloomberg, the news agency, and it said that the finance director had resigned following the discovery of a black hole in the accounting. Uh, they clicked on the link, everything looked right, they published it within 40 minutes. Uh, Vinci knew that there was something wrong because their share price was dropping off a cliff. So there's some interesting um, research been done on uh, reputational damage to public firms and the academics in that study said, okay, so what you would expect to see is a 7% drop on the initial new shock further amplified 15 to 20% on the additional news flows. Within the day, it had gone from 35 billion to 28 billion off the share price. And it was a business email compromise. Um, and it, you know, it affected the market. It was, um, and so, you know, bad actors, we can assume made a lot of money because they would have um, that so insider information. Yeah. They could sell it short, sell, sell Vinci's stock short. Um, so, so basically, I, just to make sure I understand this, they somebody created a bogus press release or announcement. They did. Yeah. Vinci was not, and they sent that to AP or another news agency. They sent it to Bloomberg. Yeah, Bloomberg. Excuse me, mm -hmm. and and Bloomberg didn't verify it. They just published it. So there's mistakes all. It's the human error again. Well, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know mm -hmm. you say that, but to be fair to Bloomberg. Um, and by the way, the market, so the, the French regulatory um, found the same that you did, that they that they had um, come up short. But um, I would argue that Vinci have a duty to their shareholders and to all of the stakeholders um, to take reasonable care and that they could have avoided this by deploying a global industry standard, right? So, you know, there is a fix for this. Well, because the email came from Vinci. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So that, I'm just connecting the dots on this. Okay. I, I, I thought that Bloomberg just got this uh, anonymous announcement, but it actually came from a Vinci address. Uh, okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah right. so, so, so yeah, you're right. That's uh, that's that's a tough one. Yeah. Well, it is because like if you're a journalist and you're looking at it and, and they've got the domain and everything looks like it's an Apple pie order. Well, who are you going to then verify it with? The person who's, you know, the you know the, the comms director whose name is at the end of it? No, you would just think it was legit. Right. I, anyway, I have huge sympathy for Bloomberg. Um, the French regulators had less sympathy and fined them five million. But I, 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 I think that if they had um, appealed that, they they might have had some, they might have had some joy in shifting it. That's a, that's a, that's amazing. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, cause usually when something like that happens, the, the financial regulators, they're also able to see who sold stocks short in large, large amounts. Right. And, and sometimes they can, they can track back, but I'm guessing that anybody was smart enough to pull this off. They probably found ways to mask who, who was doing the actual selling and gosh, you're, you're the, the wheels are turning here. I'm, <laughs> I gotta go watch some YouTube videos on. <laughs> Can I tell you what? I thought that exactly. I thought, OK, you're going to have a really large data set, you know, of all of the transactions, but it's still a closed data set. It's not infinite. Right. 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 It's it's big. But and you would think that the answer lies in there somewhere. Like, who were the first movers? How you know who? 
who made the most? I don't know. I, yeah, I'm with you. I would, um, I'd like to dig around in that data. But... So, so what can, I mean, I think all individuals and organizations should be concerned about uh, business email or just email compromise. What can companies do? I mean, okay. you, you know, can you throw just technology? Do you do training? I mean, what, what do you do? Okay, so this is super easy. So I am going to rely on NIST recommendations. So there's a NIST recommendation for uh, trustworthy email. Um, the US Department of Homeland Security, one of my uh, favorite group of people, they issued the binding operational directive. Um, and I will give you the answer in a moment. And then the NCSC worked with the British government and um, uh, published the minimum cybersecurity standards and they all of them so NIST binding operational directive minimum cybersecurity standards tell you to defend against business email compromise you need to deploy DMARC the global standard protocol so when people hear the word protocol they should understand right this is a building block of the internet and if it's at protocol level it needs to be done but we're in a really um, we're in a really good position, I think, because, um, well, first of all, the, the American government, 80% of federal agencies have adopted DMARC uh, protocol. Um, there's been, you know, uh, widespread adoption across the legal sector. Um, and um, But there's a new email standard coming in Q1 2021, BIMI. Okay. If, yeah, so BIMI is a... Um, a brand um, identifier really and what it does is once you get DMARC so uh, should I tell you a bit more about DMARC first? Please, please, yes. Okay, so uh, DMARC is, oh, it's it looks to two existing mechanisms, so it looks to um, SPF and DCHEM and um, SPF, Sender Policy Framework, is a bit like if you're not on the list, you're not coming in. And then DKIM acts a little bit like, um, you know, a um, you know card for a hotel where you have one half the password and then the door has the other half and then you put them together. Yep. That's the best way to describe those. So those two mechanisms need to work um, in order um, for the DMARC protocol to be effective. And what you do is you start off in uh, policy equals none. And that's the intelligence gathering phase. And you don't have to get users to do anything. You can simply go into wherever you've registered your domain. So uh, 123 or name.com or uh, GoDaddy or wherever you've bought that and drop in a line of code and then you start to report. And it's basically like kind of putting a flag on your email and saying, wherever you see this, send me information. And then you get a full report on um, all of the senders, so both good and bad. And then you start to see the extent of your problem. And from there, once you know how big your problem is, that's when you start to address it. Because you're seeing emails from your domain that are going out, but not from your organization. So somebody's, is that what you're saying? Precisely. Okay. So you already see everything, all of your legitimate stuff you can have eyes on, right, as the administrator. It's people who are sending emails beyond your network boundary. Got you. So then somebody on the other side of the planet, they're sending out thousands of emails using your domain. Um, obviously, something's fishy here. Yeah. No pun exactly. intended. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you want to shut that down. Right. Yeah. 
Okay, and then t t um, and tell us about Bini. So yeah, so what Bimi is going to do is it's going to alert client. Well, essentially what will happen is when you look to your inbox now, um, everyone who has DMARC to the safe harbor, so into policy equals reject. So this is a kind of a three phase journey with it, but you need to get to policy equals reject. That's where the protection is. And Bimi will, um, when you open your inbox, emails that, have DMARC at that secure level will be able to land in your inbox with the company's registered logo. So what that means then is that emails that are coming into your inbox that don't have that logo, you should treat with caution. I like that. I actually haven't seen that yet. So that's that's uh, that's pretty impressive. And it sounds very user friendly. Yeah, so it's really, really clever. There's a company called Entrust are doing the uh, certification side of it. Um, and then, yeah, and we're doing the DMARC side. Excellent. So so tell us a little bit more about uh, Redsift Red in, in your solutions. Okay, so um, Redsift, we are about five years old. Um, just a little bit of background for anybody who knows. Um, our CEO was the brains behind... Uh, the Shazam app, um, which is where, um, so Randall, who's the COO, uh, Rule, who's the CEO, and myself all worked at Shazam in the early days and went That's in. That's the app that allows you to identify what music you're listening to? Yes. I love that app. <laughs> That's awesome. Because <laughs> I can't remember. My memory is so bad. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can thank Raul, my CEO. Um, that, that was him. He, he is the one that um, figured out how to do that. That's, that is so cool. <laughs> solve a problem. That's all you have to do is solve a problem, right? <laughs> well, it was, um, it, was a, it was a bit more than that because, of course, there was no, you know, there were no such thing as apps 20 years ago. So it was right. a long conversation, you know. That's great. So yeah. we went from that and how does yeah. that, yeah, go ahead. So he, he, he did, um, he built another company along the way and, and sold that. And then um, Rule and Randall um, and together with Deepak, our CTO, built this very clever data crunching platform. And that's, really the wheelhouse and then to demonstrate um how good the redshift platform was they they spun up a solution uh, to dmark using our platform um, and what they did was they said well what's the biggest problem they looked at the intelligence community and said okay so it's business email compromised by a considerable margin it's very difficult to configure without actionable insights um, and they built the OnDemark platform. And that was our first product. Um, and it, what it does is it just simply makes it really easy. So instead of you creating your own um, DMARC records, our OnDemark platform uh, will create your unique DMARC record. And then all you do is it takes 10 minutes, you drop in that line of code, you make sure to name it underscore DMARC, you put it in against your TXT record, shut it down and then you just walk away for 10 days. 10 days later, you come back and then you log into the platform. And that is when you will see in really clear um, 
So we've got, you know, maps and all of the data is crunched in a way that even people who are not technical, like me, <laughs> can really understand what it means. Yeah. So, you know, there's like a map of the world and you'll have red dots. The bigger the red dot, the more bad emails are coming from that area. And the aim of the game is to just have green dots so that only legitimate email senders are sending email on your behalf. That's great. And and like, are your do you have customers globally right now? I mean, tell, tell, tell a little bit about your business. Okay, so um, yeah, we have them globally. We are well entrenched. We dominate in the legal sector. So um, in the UK, especially, we've got the Prime Minister's office. Um, we've got large global companies. At the beginning of the pandemic, we reached out uh, to the World Health Organization and helped them clean up their uh, email. Um, and we, yeah, we've got global companies. So we've, we've got uh, telecommunications, mobile companies. We've got oil and gas uh, businesses. Um, we've got um, one of the largest companies in Europe that no one's ever heard of <laughs> that has thousands of, so they're in um, online retail. So they've got thousands of domains mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, uh, with multiple like issues. So, you know, it can get very clunky if you've got like lots of domains and then, um, so yeah, uh, we've got those and we're in the United States and we're doing pretty well. Um, we've got offices in San Francisco and I want to say Atlanta, but uh, that I might be right, it could be Austin. <laughs> My, it starts with an A. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a big country and I'm on the West Coast. So everything back there is just all back there. It's all right. <laughs> no. Um, so let me ask you this, because there are a, a lot of different uh, business email compromise solutions on the market, you know, anti-malware, anti-phishing and in, in, you know, so there's a lot of noise out there. Um, how do you, what's your angle or your unique selling point? Um, I mean, I think you kind of already gave it to me, but in the context of the competition, um, okay. yeah, what would you say? So I would say, so in terms of um, other products, if I look at what you really want to do is you want to protect your own uh, reputation and your own brand. So some of the anti-phishing products are protecting other people's reputation and brand, mm -hmm. right? So they're catching other like bad actors coming into your inbox. We do have a solution for that. That's called Oninbox. But with DMARC, how I would differentiate us from other um, uh, other businesses offering uh, DMARC solutions, there is a problem with SPF. Right? Let me tell you, the Centre Policy Framework was devised in about two thousand and six, and it was pre-cloud. So they thought 10 lookups was more than anybody would ever need, right? Mm -hmm. But we're in 2020 and everyone's going to the cloud and you have email sending services. So, uh, you know, like you, you might have like Salesforce and um, HubSpot and, uh, you know, um, just all of these other services that are sending emails on your behalf. Well, what one sending service might have like seven lookups and another one might have four. And then what you're doing is you're busting the SPF 10 limit. So because they limited it to 10, what that means is that once you bust that limit, your email delivery will randomly fail. And then you might say, for example, if you're in a law firm, you might have a contract. Time is of the essence. You hit send. 
it goes from your outbox, but it never arrives. That would be annoying. Wouldn't it though? Yeah. And then you've got the other side saying we didn't we didn't get it, and you've got the evidence that it was sent, but actually it's lost in the ether. And there's no way for a business to prioritize. So say, for example, if you're working on a big merger or something like that and say, well, we definitely need this team's email to deliver. So we're going to give them like access rights or you can't do that. So you have to manage the SPF 10 limit. And we have a really elegant solution which allows businesses to add in as many products as they want and there is no upper limit. So if they need 20 sending services and they've got like 144 or 200 SPF lookups, we manage that with our dynamic SPF. And the brains behind the Shazam app, Raul, he's the guy, he's the clever guy who came up with this dynamic SPF. How smart is this guy, man? <laughs> oh, when I tell you, he's off the chart. And you know, like I'm not dim, but... <laughs> just i'm constantly it's it yeah it's a real privilege to work with uh with rule and randall there yeah, it's, um, it's nice to work with people that make you feel dim <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, so they're no. next level these guys yeah that's 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 inspiring actually that's that's great hey um I, we're, we're getting a little bit short on time here Let, i i, I want to jump tracks because uh, I, I meant to do this earlier but i noticed in that you are an ambassador for the global cyber alliance I am, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your work there? And then I have a question in terms of a follow-up, but just tell us a little bit about what the Global Cyber Alliance is and what you do, and then um, and then I got my question. Okay, great. So um, I'm an ambassador with Global Cyber Alliance, and Global Cyber Alliance was an initiative that was formed by City of London Police, uh, District Attorney's Office in New York, and Centre for Internet Research, and they understood that um, they needed to... Um, that there was an education and awareness gap um, and people needed trusted information. So what Global Cyber Alliance do is they, well, first of all, they develop, um, you know, products and solutions, but mostly what they do is they advocate and educate. So they'll explain what the problems are and then they, um, they'll go to governments, for example, and they will tell governments, look, this is the best practice. These are big problems. These are solutions like, you know, for example, DMARC is one of uh, one of the um, protocols that they really want to see land. Um, and yeah, and then they advocate and cheerlead and do all of the heavy lifting so that all of the um, cybersecurity um, providers can then answer the call if, if somebody needs our help. Sounds like a very worthwhile organization. I is it is it truly global or because i mean you mentioned uh some some uh different agencies in the uk and then also in the us uh does the does the reach expand beyond that yeah so there's 11 ambassadors and i'm going to not do them justice now mark so you've got saudi arabia singapore they've done really amazing work with the singaporean government uh france very recently um, they've started to engage with, of course, the United States. Um, Craig Newmark, the Craigslist guy, yeah. is a big sponsor of these guys. They do fantastic work protecting journalists. So they'll give those guys like a toolkit. They have toolkits for small businesses. They were involved in protecting the election. So I found myself at a webinar um, 
there's sort of a town hall with all of these election experts. I, I think I was surplus to requirements in all honesty, but it was really um, encouraging to see how robust their um, measures were. And, you know, GCA played no small part in that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so it is truly global. Australia, New Zealand, you know, you've got the Australian Signals Directorate who've mandated or recommended DMARC, because I mentioned the, the British and the American government. And in New Zealand as well, they've done fantastic work. And there's a guy there, Tony, whose surname I wouldn't dare uh, pronounce. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's also doing a really phenomenal stuff to um, make sure that make sure that all you you know we talk about cybersecurity being holistic mm -hmm. and that just means that really as far as i'm concerned that if we're not all in this together all making sure we're protected well that's the angle that these bad actors are going to come in roche i 100 agree and i mean that's part of the reason we have this uh, or maybe the main reason we have the secure talk podcast going on is it's important for everybody in this industry to share as much information as often as possible and as effectively as possible. To that end, I really appreciate you coming on the show and it has been great talking with you. Mark, thank you so much for inviting Hello. me. Take Welcome care. Welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk.